city of Jerusalem after the exile. So the, the Hebrew people had uh, been conquered and removed from the Holy Land towards the end of the Old Testament period. Uh, and then it was under the leadership of a, of, of a governor by the name of Nehemiah that the, the exiles had begun to, um, to move back home and to establish themselves again in the land that God had promised to Abraham. It's a story of rebuilding. Um, in the story thus far, they have managed to successfully rebuild the walls, which is quite a miraculous achievement considering the circumstances that they were living through. Uh, and then what we began to read about last week just gets crazy exciting. Um, the, the walls are complete, uh, and the people having rebuilt the walls realize that they need to rebuild not just the walls, but the soul of the nation. Uh, and there's, there's, there's no other word to describe what happened during this period of time other than revival. I, I have a, a very distinct memory as a, as a younger Christian uh, when I was a leader on a youth camp uh, up at the same place where our young adults camp will be happening soon. Uh, and on this youth camp, there was a prayer meeting which would occur every afternoon. Um, the thing about the meetings was there, was there was two separate meetings that took place at the same time. So the, the people running the camp would pool all of the, the leaders, the sort of Bible study leaders and small group leaders and the, um, the, the, the adults looking after the children into one. And we would have a, a prayer meeting just, um, just before the, the evening church service. And while we were doing that, there was a student prayer meeting, which the students were strongly encouraged to attend, which was student-led. Uh, and it would happen in the chapel before the service would begin uh, with none of us present, do you understand? Uh, and on this particular day, after finishing our sort of normal everyday, uh, our everyday prayer meeting, we made our way up to the chapel to discover the students' meeting had not ended. In fact, not only had it not ended, but they were singing loudly worship songs. And they didn't show any sign of stopping. Uh, we reached the point in the, in, the, in the sort of the curriculum for the day, the, what do you call it, the timetable of the day, where the meeting was meant to begin and they were, they were still going. And so you have this situation where you have all of these high school students in a room singing and praying and crying and worshipping and all of the people who were meant to be leading them standing outside watching it all happen. It was absolutely beautiful. Uh, eventually, um, the fellow who was meant to be preaching that night just sort of thought, I'll just give it a crack. And uh, he just walked into the room and stood in the middle of the room and preached from there because they weren't sitting in neat rows like you would in a, in a church service. Um, that one afternoon is burned into my mind as being exceptionally significant. That was, that was a, a high point. That was a spiritually momentous occasion. And so I can only imagine the experience of what it must have been like to live through the things that we have been reading about in the book of Nehemiah. Having completed the walls, they've rebuilt the walls, um, the people realize that they need to get their spiritual house in order, and so they have requested that the leaders of Israel go and get a Bible and read it to them and tell them what it is that they're hearing and explain it. And we read about a church service that didn't last hours, it lasted the day. And the Bible was opened... And the word of God was proclaimed, read loudly, and explained in groups. Uh, it seems that biblical literacy was one of the things which had fallen into disrepair and neglect over, over however long. And so what happens when these people read the Bible? It's like they're reading it for the first time. 
even though these are the Hebrews, the Israelites, the ones who consider themselves to be God's chosen people, as the words of the covenant are read out, they find out just how significantly they've been letting the side down. They have not been keeping their side of the bargain almost in any way, and at least in part because of their ignorance of what God had said. It's a frightening part of the fall, isn't it? Uh, It turns out that we as humans are so broken when it comes to the things of God, we don't always even know when we are sinning. We do it unconsciously, and we really do need God to, to come and to intervene in our lives, in our situations, and to open our eyes to realities that we are naturally blind to, and that is precisely what he has given us the Bible to do, isn't it? And so what happens when the Israelites open the Bible? It goes ballistic. Um, Mike showed us a pattern. Uh, I can get the, 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 the graphic up there on the screen of, of what happens across the course of Nehemiah chapter 8. The word of God is opened and the voice of God is heard. That's the first thing that happens. And then the next thing that happened was the people realized that they fall short of the life that God has called them to live and they have sorrow over their sin. Um, Sorrow over their sin quickly transitions into joy in the fact that they have discovered that the God of the Bible is merciful and forgives sin and that his mercies are new every day and the Israelites begin to experience the joy of the rescued. And from there, the joy of having been rescued leads them into a new kind of obedience, different to whatever they have experienced before. The first thing they discover when they open the Word of God is that um, one of the things that God had commanded that the the Hebrews were to do to worship Him, they had given them a kind of yearly calendar to follow of religious holidays. That was how the year was to be structured. And at this moment in time, there was a festival that they were meant to be celebrating Uh, which we are told had not been properly observed since the period of the judges. The festival of booths, which is fun to say. I really enjoy saying it. It's a week-long celebration where they have to make huts, essentially go out the back and make a gunya. And it's, it's a celebration of God's provision for the people during their time, their 40 years in the desert. And so, having spent a whole day as kind of like the entire city gathered in worship. Uh, They've then gone out and celebrated this week-long festival uh, and they are just doing the thing that they had always been meant to be doing and can you you just imagine the feeling of it? Imagine if we were the... (laughs) Imagine if we were celebrating Easter, which is not in any way ordained by God with the same strength as the festival of of booze was. But imagine if we'd never heard of the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus, the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And then suddenly... We come across some history book, we come across some portion of God's Word, we, we read that story for the first time, and we think, you know what, we should probably celebrate this. And we feel like we're the first people in history to ever do this thing. To ever do this thing. Even though that's certainly not true. That's what it must have felt like. It takes them seven days to celebrate this festival. And then it says, on the eighth day, they held a, and it's just called a solemn assembly. I don't know what that means. But they get together again. And the worship service is continuing a week later. In today, we pick up the story the day after that. What do we find? The answer is, they're still going. They're not done yet. These these are souls which are just hungry 
for more of God and they will not be satisfied until they have him. We pick up the story in chapter 9, verse 1. It says, now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled. This is day nine. With fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. That's a, that's a culturally normal symbol of mourning and of humility. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. This is, this is ugly public repentance. Like, I think church culture can be a bit polite sometimes so that this might... Can you imagine if this was happening here this morning? If, if mid-service I got interrupted because someone put their hand up and just said, look, I just need to confess some sin that I've got to get off my chest. I need, I need God to forgive me. It'd be a little bit uncomfortable, wouldn't it? But this is, this, is, this is happening publicly all day, continually, day after day. They stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. And then the whole rest of chapter 9 turns into, I'm going to read it, a, a prayer led by the Levites of confession and repentance and faith. And it is a masterclass in how to speak to God when you know you've muffed it. It is, it is a wonderful example to us of how to approach God to say, I am sorry, give me your grace. Why don't we read? It tells us in verses 4 and 5, it sort of sets the scene for us. It says that on the stairs of the Levites, so you can imagine all the people are gathered near the temple, uh, and on the stairs of the Levites um, stood, and there's a list of names there of, of priests, who cry with a loud voice, to the Lord their God, and then it says those Levites, and that's a slightly different list of names. I couldn't find any significance in the difference other than the fact that maybe Nehemiah is being factually correct. Um, it says these, these group of Levites speak up and they say, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord. You alone, you have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, 
to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and you gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer and in the time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven and according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. 
yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does, then he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and you warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments or your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and the rich land you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yields goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. And because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. You can look at the list of names at the beginning of chapter 10 if you wish. What a prayer. Can you see the pattern that it describes to us? In the book of Deuteronomy, uh, we get a record of what was said to the people of Israel just before they entered the promised land after the 40 years in the wilderness. Deuteronomy is a book where Moses reminds the Hebrews of the covenant that they had made with God at Sinai. The covenant which came through Moses had a foundation of grace under it, that must be said. But it was also a covenant of law in a way that was different to how you and I approach God. It was a covenant, a promise, a deal that said, if you keep these laws, you will live by them. There were blessings for obedience and it specifically outlined punishments for disobedience. And so picture this. The people of Israel as an entire nation assembled in a big plane, like ground plane, not airplane, ready, ready to cross the River Jordan. And Moses is standing before them and giving them his last ever speech. At the end of this book, he goes up on a hill and dies. And he had this to say to them moments before they entered the promised land. I'll read a few selections from 29 and 30 of Deuteronomy. 
um, and you can see a list of the passages up there on the screen. Moses says to them, Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or a clan or a tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe. Though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. He's taking grace for granted, do you understand? This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. In verse 24, he says, All the nations will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land? What has caused the heat of his great anger? And then people will say, It is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers which he made with them when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they went and they served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they had not known and whom he had not allotted them. And therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land, bringing bringing upon it all the curses written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger and fury and great wrath. And he cast them into another land as they are this day. Moses predicted what would eventually happen to the people of Israel in the exile, do you understand? And many times throughout their history. But that wasn't the end of what he had to say to them. He also had this to say to them a few verses later. And then when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, And you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and you obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. That cycle basically describes the rest of Israel's history. Do you understand? Um, There's a a good diagram I I have ready to go, um, which is usually used to describe the pattern of the the book of Judges in particular, but it describes the whole history of Israel as well. The people are established in the land through the salvation of their God, a salvation which they take for granted and they grow fat and complacent on his mercy and then they start to meddle with other gods with other idols, with the sorts of sins that he has forbidden them to take part in. And as a result of their casting away the lordship of their great saviour, God turns them over. And throughout their history, it happened again and again that a foreign people would conquer them whilst they were not calling on the name of the Lord. This would bring great hardship into the life of Israel, and the people living through that hardship would come to their senses and go, what have we been doing? We've been taking God for granted, we should turn back to him, and we should ask for his mercy, and without fail, when the people did that, God responded in kindness and mercy, and he restored them. Haven't the people of Israel just lived through this pattern again in the time of Nehemiah? Having 
sinned in a way which um, the prophets described as being worse than the Canaanites that God had driven out before them, God sent the Assyrians and the Babylonians to conquer the nations of Israel and to take the people away into exile where they have now been for hundreds of years. And now at the end of the period of exile, under the leadership of men like Ezra and Nehemiah, the people have again begun to call on the name of the Lord to ask for his mercy, to ask that he restore them to the promises that he had made to their forefathers. And look, here they are standing again in the city of Jerusalem. The walls have been built and the heart of the nation is coming alive in Yahweh their God. The pattern has been kept. The shocking thing about this pattern is how willing God is to go through it again and again and again and again. That's the most shocking thing. Right from the beginning of his dealings with these people, God has described this pattern to them. Israel will inevitably sin against him and will inevitably face his judgment because of their sin. And at all times, he will be willing to restore them again, though they have betrayed him. This offer of grace from God, do you understand, is never-ending. Even though through millennia they have failed to keep their side of the covenant. What are we to take from this? This prayer and the story that is calling to our mind is teaching us the character of our God, do you understand? This is the God we worship. This is who he is and what he is like. And what we have learned about him today is that our God keeps his promises with a shocking durability. His grace comes with an outstanding endurance. We can read elsewhere in the Bible about how dangerous it is to play with sin. And surely we've heard some of that today. The warning of the consequences of idolatry. But today's passage, Nehemiah 9, is not about the punishment. It is about the restoration. The Israelites have failed to keep their end of the bargain consistently throughout their entire history. But there is a God in heaven who is determined to have people for his very own. And he has called them out from the world to be different, to be special and to be his. God is determined to have his people in his presence, in his place forever. That is his agenda. He has placed his name on these people in front of the world and their ultimate success is now tied to his glory. Their success is his success. Their failure reflects on him and so he is not going to give up on them. Do you understand? Because, because we're dealing with most of the Old Testament this morning... We aren't limited in places we can consider how these play out. For example, we've now heard this confession from the side of the Hebrews confessing to God that they haven't kept their end of the bargain and asking for God's mercy. But there is also in the book of Ezekiel a prophecy where we get that same story, but from God's perspective. I'll read a portion of it to you from Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 7 to 14. This is God speaking. Why is it, is our question, 
that he continues to bear with these people who so convincingly suck at this. (laughs) I said to them, says the Lord our God, cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. None of them cast away the detestable things their eyes feasted on, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. And then I said, I would pour out my wrath upon them and send my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And so I led them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. And then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But I acted for the sake of my name that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. And it keeps going. And it tells the whole story that we've just read in Nehemiah. Do you see what's happening? (laughs) The ultimate end of God's covenant people is of the utmost importance to God and his important and his, his purposes in this world. He, he is utterly devoted to the plan of rescuing these people and making them his. And all of that means that though they fail, God is not going to change his mind and give up on them. We're not talking a lifetime here. We're talking most of human history. God is not going to change his mind. He will bless, redeem, and restore his people no matter the cost. How does this truth of God's faithfulness transpose into our experience of grace through Christ? It certainly does. Did you know that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? He never changes which means that the God who dealt with Israel in that way is now the God who we encounter this morning. He hasn't changed. Not only has he not changed, but rather he has thrown open the floodgates of grace and has grafted grafted us Gentiles into that same line of promise. Do you remember Romans 11? We read about that. And so now we who believe, who have received God's Holy Spirit, have entered into covenant with God. And we are now inheritors of this relentlessly determined and patient grace. God is now determined to bring you complete, whole, and thriving into his eternal kingdom, his place where you can be with him forever. 
Jesus prayed on the night where he was arrested and taken away to be crucified for all of the believers who were going to come. Jesus prayed for you on the night when he was arrested. Listen to this prayer. A third speech. Through the lens of what we have just heard in Nehemiah and Ezekiel, and you will hear that same heartbeat of God working itself out in our salvation the day before Jesus was crucified. Jesus praying says in John 17, from verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people who you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. All yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's talking about Judas. But now, I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This is the covenant-keeping God who has placed his name, his glory, onto a group of people and their success is his success. And their destruction is his shame. And he is determined that they will be with him in his place forever. Do you see it? Because God doesn't change. 
Jesus has come and is now pulling you into this new, growing, eternal kingdom. Rescued from this fallen world, rescued from the sin and the idolatry which causes so much grief here, let this land. You have not out-sinned grace. Took us a long time to get here, but it was worth it. I'm going to say it again. You have not yet out-sinned grace. Perhaps as we were reading this account of, of massive repentance on the part of Israel, you have noticed that like them, your house is not in order. That the part of the story that you can relate to more easily is, is not their repentance, but their stubbornness. You realize as you read this that it is you who has been distant from God. It is you who has been avoiding his word. That it is you who has been hungry for idols that stand in his right place in your life. Or that it is you who has been presuming upon his grace, content to make yourself fat whilst ignoring him, spiritually speaking. And as a result of that presumptuousness you are living in the spiritual consequences of your actions and you are now in a spiritual drought sin had promised you pleasure and delivered slavery and you are stuck and you are frustrated and life is futile and joyless because you've been living for yourself and that is not a thing to build a life upon. You. You who has so neglected grace. You who has treated his mercies so flippantly. To you I speak. And I say you have not yet out sinned grace. His mercies are new every day. And like has been true for thousands of years. If you would turn to him today... He will have you. He is delighted to see you restored and flourishing and whole because he has already placed his name upon you and your success is his success. What would the nations around us say if his precious ones fall? Even though you have been running for a long time, even though you fail again and again and again and again, and even though it is shameful to speak of the nonsense that you have been meddling around with in private, if you turn to him now, he will have you joyfully and gladly. He will restore you. And in doing so, he will proclaim the glory of his name in this world because this is his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And in treating you like that, he shows this world who he is. Do not doubt that there is grace for you today. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Other people get tired of showing grace. The apostles came to Jesus and said, you've told us that we have to forgive our brother. Tell us, how many times do we have to do it? 
It's one of those, it's one of those questions that we ask looking for like a maximum limit. Like one, two, three, and then I don't have to do it anymore. Do I have to, do, is it seven times or, or, or 77 times that I have to give him? And he says it's, 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 it's exponential. 70 times seven, whatever that is. I'm not good at maths. People might run out of patience with us. Hopefully, if life is working the way that it's meant to, your parents are the ones who are the most patient with you. I have no idea why my parents still love me after some of the things I said and did in my teenage years. When you place your faith in Jesus as saviour, you became a child of God. And God is a good father. He knows how to give his children good gifts. And when you become God's child, he grabs on and he never lets go. So what do we do with that knowledge? Let's just do the smart thing for once and avoid the complacency step and go straight to repentance and faith. Wouldn't that seem like a good idea? Today is a good day. Come now. Come confessing freely the way in which you have failed because we have the certainty of forgiveness. You've got nothing to lose. Nothing to be afraid of. The invitation of God is to come near right now and be reconciled to him, to again and afresh experience his mercy. To draw near to him in the certainty of acceptance. His grace has lost none of its power. Is Jesus less resurrected today than he was last time? Come near because shame has lost its power over you. Your sin does not define you. His grace does. His mercy does. And so come and be clean and be washed and be made new because his mercies are new every day and they are for you. This I say in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, today seems like a good day for us to confess. That like ancient Israel before us, the church here in Australia has not kept covenant with you. There are those individuals who have have been faithful, certainly. But by and large, we have been a complacent church. We have taken your kindness and the abundance of your provision to us for granted. We have presumed upon your grace. We have grown stiff-necked and arrogant, self-centered. We consume without giving. (laughs) We feel betrayed every time we experience any minor hardship whilst failing to honor you as holy serve you with our lives and it's not a surprise that in light of this we have lived through an age of decline in the, in the faith many churches have, have forever closed their doors that many congregations are made up only of the grey 
We confess that we have been cowardly in speaking your truth to the word and we have kept our faith secret and private and personal. We confess that we have been afraid to stand upon the truth of your morality, to call sin, sin, and to call people to repentance. But we have been ashamed of your name. Father, we confess that we are afraid to have our faith seen in public. Afraid of what people will think of us. Or of the penalties that might follow. Father, all these things we confess. Because it is our hope that you are the God who forgives and restores and redeems. Would you restore your church in Australia, we pray. In Brisbane, we pray. In Inogra, we pray. Would you take us from fat complacency and from presumptuousness and bring us to joy-filled dependence? Father, we also confess that our idols have not brought our souls satisfaction. They have not enriched our lives. They have not delivered what they promised. Because they are not you. We have been fools. So, Father, we pray that you would remember your great name, which you have placed upon us, and that you would glorify your name in our restoration. We pray that we would experience your long-suffering grace this morning. Turn our hearts towards you. Turn my heart towards you. Lord, would it be a delight to open your word and hear your voice each day? Would I see prayer as the natural response to all difficulties? Because my heart believes that you are the answer to my need. Would you humble me in your mercies so that I am glad to serve others, not thinking too highly of myself? Would you give to us the joy of your salvation? Because there is no one else. We need you and we want you and we welcome you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.